Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello and welcome to this special politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me in studio today, as usual, were our political editor Pat Lee and political reporter Sarah Barden. We wanted to look back over the Eighth Amendment referendum campaign and see if we could draw some lessons from it. We were joined also by Una Mullally, who, as well as being an Irish Times columnist, is editor of Repeal the Eighth, which is an anthology of writing by campaigners and activists on the issue. And also by Jane Souter, who is director of the Institute for Future Media and Journalism. She's a former journalist herself, but she's also an expert on communications, deliberation and participation. She was involved in the setting up of the Citizens' Assembly process and she looks at media in general and the way in which it interacts with politics. I started off by reading out a direct message on Twitter from one of our avid listeners. I always encourage our listeners to get in touch with us and a fair few of them have been getting in touch over the last week or so in the aftermath of the referendum. I just wanted to quote from a a very, very, very lengthy direct message I got on Twitter. I don't encourage listeners uh, to communicate in this fashion with us regularly, but I thought it was interesting and it touched on a few of the points we hope to discuss today. Um, It was John Rogers who got in touch and he said he was getting more and more fed up with Irish broadcast media's coverage of the aftermath of Friday's vote. He was particularly critical of the Marion Finucane show last weekend. I quote, listening to Finucane would lead one to think that the referendum had just about passed instead of the actual result of a yes landslide. Her and others like her on Radio 1 and News Talk have presented us with bishops and Iona Institute heads and others of the no side who show an unerring inability to face up to the fact that they're in a tiny minority and they're enabled in this delusion by the media. Jane Souter, I mean, you've worn many hats over the years as both as a journalist and now as an academic and you run an organisation called Future of Media and you're, you're looking at what the future of journalism is. From those perspectives, that critique, does it stand up? Um, well, it kind of does. I think one of the interesting things about the um, about the RTE election poll is that they were, because um, it was done in conjunction with the universities, they were able to ask a lot more questions because these things are very expensive to ask questions. And one of the things that we asked was how strongly you feel about the issue of abortion from zero to ten. So we're able to kind of map where people are. And we can see normally you kind of put zero, one, two together as very extreme on one end, eight, nine, ten together as very extreme on the other. And what we saw was that there was about 17 to 18 percent at zero, one, two, so very far down the kind of uh, conservative end, and 40 percent up at eight, nine, ten in terms of the much more liberal end. So what you can see is that the whole centre has shifted. The mean was well over six, whereas normally you'd expect it to be about five. So the centre of Irish debate has shifted. And where the conservative position is, where the big numbers are, are kind of around four and five. So they're kind of moderately conservative rather than ultra conservative or... um, sort of no way out type people, which often the Iona Institute actually represent. So, in fact, if RTE wanted to to represent even no voters, it should be getting more moderately conservative people on. 
because the extreme but, has but a I much wonder, smaller portion. But I wonder, is there an inherent structural flaw, an unavoidable one, given the regulatory structure that we have, particularly as, as it applies to, to broadcast media, not to print media, that, that, that works somewhat differently, Whereas where the electorate is being given a binary choice and under the current regulations, broadcasters are supposed to give equal weight to each of those choices. But what happens if there are the kind of the imbalances in those binary choices? For example, somebody might believe um, that uh, abortion in very restricted circumstances should be permitted and therefore as a result the Eighth Amendment should be repealed. They're on the yes side. So you are inevitably left in this binary choice yeah, so with very, the Iona, Iona Institutes of this world. Absolutely and certainly in, in advance of the referendum but I think post the referendum when you can actually see where the decision making was and where we have more than binary numbers where we can actually see what people felt about the different areas we can see where the middle is. So, you know, all human opinion is somewhere in a, a sort of a normal curve to be really geeky about it. And we can see that that curve has uh, has shifted. So no longer does the, the kind of extreme tail of, uh, of conservatism, it's no longer as representative of opinion as it once was. The whole thing has shifted to be more liberal. So I think in advance of the referendum, yes, obviously you can't have somebody who is conservative but ultimately is going to vote repeal arguing against repeal because that's not going to be balanced. You need to have people who are going to argue against repeal. Um, But afterwards, when you're looking at it and you're trying to reflect the society and you're trying to reflect the country and you're trying to reflect the kind of the broad range of views that are are in the country at the moment, then having the kind of the tail um, isn't necessarily representative of those views. No, I'm not saying never have them, but I'm saying having them in most discussions most of the time as representative of the Conservative position um, isn't necessarily reflecting the Conservative position as it stands. Pat, given what Jane is saying there and given that we now have a very kind of clear decision of the people and, you know, bolstered by the kind of research that she's talking about there, do, do we in the media need to have a rethink about how we define terms of what you know what the what the center ground is what the parameters of a, of a debate of this sort will be in the future you know around other issues of you know culture wars or morality or ethics yeah I, I think that's a conversation we should be constantly having with ourselves I'm sure it would be uh, immensely tedious for everybody else to have to listen to it but I think that we should um uh, you know I think that we should not just in the aftermath of events like the the referendum but on a pretty ongoing basis we should examine uh, we should examine what we do but I suppose where the middle ground is on any given issue depends on what that issue is. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think it's the job of the, the media to have a fixed view of the sort of spectrum of moral or political views in the country and to, repre- and, and to, to choose spokespeople that represent those uh, in, in proportion to, where, to how many people are at each end of the spectrum. I think it's our job to actually interrogate the issue that, uh, that, that, that is at play. So uh, I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm not sure we should be thinking about quotas and things like that uh, for, uh, for, for the Ionians. Because I, yeah. I was more thinking from from the point of view of RT as a public sector broadcaster, one of the things it is meant to do is actually reflect reflect the country. Mm. So I'm not saying but that as, as the Irish Times as needs journalists a, needs they need a to quota. interrogate a, an issue. Oh, absolutely. But I'm just saying automatically going to the Iona Institute as 
the basis of here's the conservative position. I think it's actually kind of lazy and that really journalists need to open up their contact books and be able to bring in more and different conservative voices to be able to interrogate issues in in a better way, in a, in a wider way, and in a way that isn't just done purely by the likes of Diana. So bring in more voices, open up your contact books. Una, what do you think? Yeah, I'd agree with Jane on that. I think that... Um, Actually, having those more fundamentalist conservative opinions like the Iona Institute harmed the No campaign ultimately because all they were doing was speaking to their base all the time. Um, the views of the Iona Institute, whoever they are uh, and, and why they have such access to the media, I suppose, is another conversation, but are very entrenched. Um, and so I don't think that considering that the massive failure of the No campaign was really not reaching beyond people who already agreed with them, I think that compounded that. Um, and I think in the aftermath of it, when, let's say, when I was on Sean O'Rourke on Monday and you have, you know, a bishop and John Downing and uh, John Murray from the Ion Institute, who wasn't flagged as being the chair of the Ion Institute on the programme, you really have to question why that is the analysis that is happening on a, on a well, Monday morning. John Downing described himself as a yes voter. Uh, yeah, but I mean, he was still completely, you know, let's say he was arguing against against my my analysis or whatever, as, as in terms of how how the country is has been represented in the debate throughout the throughout the campaign. But I suppose, um, you know, that this this uh, representation of a very particular conservative point of view is not reflective, as Jane is saying, of the you know very. Uh, broad church, I suppose, um, and, and the nuanced opinions that reside within that. And I really think there needs to be an examination of that and a continued examination of, of why that is the analysis, why that is the go-to. I do think it's lazy and I don't think it's it's really reflecting how people think I about I suppose there things. are two questions in, in that. One is one is the particular broadcast situation. Yeah. The, the, on the one hand, on the other hand, <coughs> legislative requirement of, of broadcasters and that, you know, that, you know, I... But there if that's are, to change, there that's are a, more creative ways But there ways are editorial choices again. But, but who, who are the no voices that should have been heard, let's say, in RTE in relation to broadcast that we didn't hear? Well, I suppose that's up to the producers and researchers on those programmes to go and find those people. Um, and, I, you know, I... I you know, I can't, you know, name people off off the top of my head, but maybe that's because all we've ever heard is from a particular, you know, quite right wing, very socially conservative cohort. Um, and in terms of representing that balance on the debate, there are more creative ways of doing that. The stop clock approach is not uh, required, actually. And you can... Um, you know, uh, platform views over, let's say, uh, the course of a day on a programme or, or course of a day on a station or over different programmes. And it doesn't have to constantly be this binary bun fight. Um, and I don't think that serves anyone well. And we saw what happens when that completely disintegrates, um, such as during the Claire Byrne, the infamous, now infamous Claire Byrne debate. Uh, so I do think there are more creative ways of doing that. And I, you know, when you listen to programmes uh, on RTE, like let's say Marion Finucane or Sean O'Rourke or something, you know, there is this nagging feeling of uh, opinions being representative of, a, of an Ireland that has actually changed. And structurally, even from a production point of view, um, these are the same formats that we've been hearing on radio since the 70s and 80s. So surely there, there's a, a better way to, to 
you know, produce these kind of programs and represent uh, views more authentically across the board. I just wonder, Jane, say, for example, and we'll move on from the broadcast area in a, in a, in a moment, but say, for example, it seems quite possible there will be a referendum very soon on removing the provision um, about the, the place of women uh, in the home, in the constitution. Along with women blasphemy, I think. Indeed. Yeah. And, yeah. And, 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 Pressing and issues. <laughs> in, in both those cases, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that there will be a considerable majority at the outset in favour of those, certainly of the women in the home one. I'm not sure about the yeah, last one, but probably. But how, you know... Well, this how, was the how, huge you, problem. You, like, look at what happened... this absurd situation? Yeah, so look at what happened with the... voices get free airspace. Exactly. So you look at what happened with children's, you know, so, you know, you talk to RTE producers before that and they're going, oh my gosh, what do we... You know, we would actually like to have a wider range of voices, but it's going to be really narrow, the, the number of people who are actually going to argue against children's rights. And so what you find is very small numbers of people and, you know, immediately identifiable um, people having to represent those views. But I think that's, you know, that's actually Supreme Court uh, law. It's in our constitution. We have to have the balance. But it's an interpretation. It's an interpretation of it. But also the BAI interprets it. So they say, well, you don't need to have a stopwatch, as Una was saying, within any individual programme, but you do need to reflect balance over the course of a day, over the course of a programme, and this kind of thing. So what actually happens is you end up with issues not really being discussed at all. Like, for example, the presidential age, now I know it was running with something else, but there was, equality, yeah. yeah, there was um, there was no debate about presidential age. I think there was only one of my former colleagues, Colm Kenny, who was, you know, jumping up and down, telling everybody that you know it was almost a mandatory eighteen-year-old in uh, in the Auris if you voted for it, as opposed to you know possibly allowing a thirty-four-year-old one day. Because there's nobody, on this because there's nobody against. Do you know what I mean? Then you're actually limiting the debate. So I think we should go back and actually look at that and how it's interpreted and what we actually do about it. Just on those referenda in terms of the role of the woman in the home, position woman in the home and blasphemy, I actually think they're extraordinarily pressing issues. You know, this is about, um, you know, reworking a constitution to reflect who we are. Um, And I think that a lot of women in particular feel really strongly about, um, you know, that that line of of the role of the woman in the home. Sure, but it has no kind of immediate practical effect. Well, it has. the referendum we just had obviously has an enormous... Moving away from the practicality... Terrors and things, but it's... Yeah, yeah. I think it's more about... um, in the same way that the practicality of introducing abortion uh, legislation, etc., is one part of this referendum. Obviously, we know this referendum was about a lot more. And I do think that, um, you know, uh, the, the role of the woman in the home you know, article is practical in terms of how people feel, how women feel, um, how they exist in society, how they're valued, uh, the, you know, how our constitution reflects who we are. So for me personally, that would be a very, no, very symbolism is mean, Symbolism has Absolutely, meaning. Symbolism yeah. is, is not meaning. But it has no legal force. Indeed. And indeed, there's indeed. a whole set of statements in the constitution which the courts have found don't have practical Yes, but the, referen- the referendum just passed. I think we, uh, The referendum just passed, I think force. we can all agree, had both huge symbolic weight and huge immediate practical weight, which we're going to see in an act of legislation. Now, Sarah, you've been very quiet. <laughs> just letting it all uh, unfold before my eyes. Uh, to be honest, I think we're. Let's not make the media the story. For me, the, uh, the biggest issue that has arisen from this uh, referendum campaign, one of the biggest issues, there's many that have arisen, is how to, how to touch our parliamentarians were with their constituents. And I've said, I said in here uh, during the week, and I said it on RT at the weekend, that 
I and other political commentators used TDs and senators wrongly as barometers um, of where this referendum campaign was going. On this occasion, that was wrong for us to do because not only were they actively disengaging with the subject, they were actually burying their heads in the sands and doing anything to avoid having the conversation. So when I was talking to X from Donegal or Y from Mayo when they were telling me, oh, you know, it might not pass the mayor of Donegal, I shouldn't have carried as much weight to that as I did because I should have known that the people who were telling me weren't actually engaged in the subject matter whatsoever. So that meant that I was out of sync with the movement that was happening in this country. Now, in saying that, I don't necessarily think as a political reporter, it's my job to be uh, following, you know, individual movements across the country. But it meant that I, our, the media's coverage wasn't representative of the conversations that people were having in society. And I think that's the issue for us. And I, have, I do agree uh, with... Jane, with regards to the extreme voices on uh, broadcast media, in particular people like the Iona Institute, who really, you know, uh, who are they? You know, for me, the Catholic Church have a right to have their say on an issue like this because they do carry weight within the society, whether people like it or not, they do. And they should have contributed to the debate. But um, they didn't very much. But they, Well, they didn't on broadcast media, but they used the pulpit to preach their con- congregation at every, uh, at every opportunity that uh, was available to them. What, what the difficulty then for the no side was, and I think Una touched on it, it actually worked out against them because those voices that were on the broadcast media were too extreme for where the people were. And we had John McGurkin here and um, doing a podcast and you know, we asked him about rape, incest, fatal fetal abnormalities, the exceptional cases. And the fact that he and his uh, and that and the no side were unwilling to budge on those issues meant that they lost a whole section of society that were soft no's. They became soft yeses. And in the end, we now discovered that they um, that they became yeses. So for me, I think broadcast media are in such a tricky bind because they do have to abide by this 50-50 rule um, or they believe they have to abide by this 50-50 rule. What that resulted in was both sides not being challenged adequately on some of the claims that they were making. I mean, I spoke about it here recently about a claim that was made by a no campaigner on a canvas in News Talk where he said that nine, I think it was nine in ten women who have an abortion take their own life I mean, it, it wasn't it wasn't even it didn't make any sense, but it was never challenged by the broadcaster. And it, it, maybe the broadcaster felt that their hands were tied. But I certainly didn't believe that that should go unchallenged. And I went out on air for I think it started at eight o'clock and it didn't go off air until 12 o'clock until someone from Together for Yes had to come out and, and counter yeah. it. And, and stuff. this is the thing as well of, of, of when you have these debates and, and the debates seem to only be able to exist in broadcast media with like two people or four people uh, shouting at each other basically yeah. that you know there are better ways of doing that of actually going out and talking to um, a broader number of people but the real issue for broadcast media and we'll get off this in a second it remains I like a bit of media <laughs> but, it, but it, re- it remains um, the discrepancy in understanding of uh, you know allotting time equals balance um, and therefore you can get loads of like false equivalents and all these kind of crazy statements said. It was particularly evidence in the Clare Byrne debate where people could just say whatever they wanted within the given time slot that they had. And and the, um, 
you know, the kind of misinterpretation of impartiality there. Like there's a lot of nuances within how those things kind of flow out. But I, I do think that you're right in terms of um, the, the the main aspect of this is that movement that occurred uh, across the country. And Noel Whelan has a very good piece today about the potential ramifications for that with regards to the party political system um, and talking about how the sock Dems have got, a, have got a boost in membership and so on. So that aspect of, um, you know, a female-led movement that you know, brought in so many people who, some of whom haven't been politically engaged before, some of whom were uh, engaged around the marriage equality movement is seismic um, and will will continue to have an impact. And I want to actually come to that that in a minute, but one last media navel-gazing question to to you, Pat. In retrospect, now now this vote is over, it seems to me that you could argue that actually the situation with the Eighth Amendment was, and Colin McGorman made this argument to me a year or more ago, the Eighth Amendment was a extreme legislative provision that made us an outlier in most civilised Western democratic countries in terms of our, our laws around this, around women's reproductive rights. And because it was embedded in our constitution and had been there for so long, um, that when it came to the removal of it, we brought our usual critical apparatus, which is on the one hand, on the other hand, what's the compromise? What's the middle ground? How do we split the difference and, and move on from there? Whereas in fact and the, the electorate have proved this point, it was just totally out of whack with what a modern democratic society wanted and they kicked it out the door and they got the opportunity and maybe we should have reflected that reality and the, well, more. Like in, 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 in a way we have known for a long time and I, I mean I've lost count of the number of podcasts that we've done in this room where we spoke about the big fact in the abortion debate long before the referendum ever came on the horizon two years ago, two and a half years ago when we started polling uh, about this issue when we discovered that there was an overwhelming and settled majority in favour of liberalising Ireland's abortion laws and that did not that did not change. We said it again and again. What the campaign was about both in its you know, in its long pre-formal campaign phase and the few weeks of the campaign itself was people deciding on whether the government's proposals were where they wanted to go in terms of a replacement for the Eighth, uh, for the eighth Amendment. And that was the, that was the story of the campaign. And the, know, yes cam- and the Yes campaign... I don't, I don't quite, think so. I I, think... I, I'll just finish. The Yes campaign quite sensibly realised that if this was to be won, it was going to be won in the middle ground by reassuring people that uh, that the government's proposals were a sensible middle ground option. And that's what happened. And I'm kind of perplexed at some of the attempts by the proponents of a successful campaign to disavow that in recent days. I don't think that is... I think that's part of it. I don't think that's the overwhelming... Um, sense of the campaign um, obviously the 12 week thing kept coming up on, on doors when when I was canvassing so it was a part of it but if you examine um, the main reason why people actually voted yes it was for a woman's right to choose so yeah, what but, 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 but that the is the woman's right to choose thing this is, sorry but just I'll just finish different things to different well, people I'll just, just gonna, finish um, you know because um, you know the legislation only existed in, in recent times and before that, you had this massive uh, grassroots movement that kept accumulating, particularly, let's say, from September 2012 onwards, where there was a very, very large March for Choice in Dublin with about three or 4,000 people at it. Um, obviously, Savita Halapanavar died the following month. This kind of, gal- you know, there was no sight of legislation in September 2012. So, you know, like me- 
I don't think that people were particularly voting on legislation at all. And and I think, again, that that's missing really what happened uh, across the board, which was uh, there was obviously symbolism involved. There was this acutely cruel, unfair thing in the Constitution that really weighed on women a lot for all of my adult life. I was born in 1983. Um, And that really weighed on us a lot that was painful, that was cruel, that was unjust. And I do think that uh, across the board, given that the main reason was that a woman's right to choose, uh, which has been a message since the 1960s, really, uh, when we when we talk about this kind of campaigning, was what brought people over. Now, people might have listened to uh, and, and examined very thoroughly the legislation, but ultimately it was much bigger than that. You know, it, this was not just about a piece of legislation. This was about a movement and this was about um, that, that, that feminist thought that infiltrates that. And that can't really be denied because you that know, is it, what it, happened. It, ab- it absolutely is for some people. And that's your core yes vote. But what gets them over the line and what gets them up to 70% is that is that middle ground. And I know um, in, in both the RTE poll and in several of the polls that we did that there was a large majority of people who said they were in favour of a right to choose. But the thing about the right to choose is a bit like equality and fairness. It can mean different things to different people. So, for instance, the legislation that will enshrine the right to choose doesn't provide for a woman's right to choose after 12 weeks except in specific no, circumstances. Like the, so, the... so, so the, the same poll that were saying, you know, an overwhelming majority of people support a woman's right to choose were also specifically saying that majorities of people were not in favour of the right to choose in, uh, in, in, in particular instances. No, but I think people aren't talking about a woman's right to choose in relation to the legislation. People are talking about a, what a woman's right to choose means more broadly. And it does mean bodily autonomy and it does mean personal agency. That's what a woman's right to choose actually means globally as part of abortion rights movements. But that movements has to be globally. put into legislation. Yeah, no, of course, here. but you're and missing it, the bigger picture. But, but, about, does, but the bodily autonomy stuff stop after 12 weeks? No, no, that, but I'm that, not, I you need to leave the, the mechanics of the legislation aside and zoom out a little bit and examine what a woman's right to choose means as a slogan, as a point of view, as a philosophy, as a political uh, body political understanding as the body uh, as a battleground as woman's personal autonomy all over the world I mean this message you hear is the same message that is happening in you know uh, Midwest America right now or in Argentina or Brazil or Poland and it's or strength Italy. as a campaigning slogan I get that no, no, but, but it's strength is... as a campaigning slogan is precisely because it, it can unify people who are who are Can I just uh, say, to differ yeah, on individual points of view. The historical aspect Jane's of the, been waiting the, very patiently there. So it, it wasn't, I don't think the word choice, I think it was only on a very small minority of posters. I think the Yes campaign actually yeah. even that, stayed away from it because they were worried about accident. it. Well, it mightn't have been an accident. I'm sure, absolutely, it wasn't an accident, which makes the fact that 62% of people cited their first reason as choice Mm. even more interesting because it wasn't actually part of the campaign. It was on very few posters. And then the second thing they cited was health. And so then the... The, the other cases which, you know, fatal fetal abnormalities or rape and they were much lower down. So choice was actually the thing that most people cited despite it not being part of the campaign. That's very interesting. Which I thought was really interesting. So I was really surprised about that. I think everybody, when we first saw that question, we looked at it and went, wow, that is really surprising because the campaign went out of the way not to really talk about choice. There was only very small groups who actually put the word choice up on uh, on posters. People were asked not to talk about 
about it too much as I understand it. So I thought it was really interesting that the people themselves came to the view of choice without it being part of the campaign. And then I think the other really important thing is what were the people doing? So I don't think they were examining legislation because what they say, the plurality of people say that the thing that made them make up their minds was personal stories. Mm-hmm. And so what they were doing is they were listening to their friends, to their neighbours, to their kids' friends, to their grandchildren, to their children. They were listening to the community and to society and that's what made them make up their minds. So I don't think that anybody was particularly examining the nuances of legislation. I think people kind of realised, okay, so we've got a basis, we kind of know where it is. But it's still going to be up for debate. There might even, as I think I heard Pat saying in one of these podcasts, be an election between now and then. And, you know, Fianna Fáil might be in power and then what will happen to the to the legislation. So I don't think people were overly focused on the legislation. I think they were, first of all, listening to personal stories. And then it was really interesting that over a third of people actually had some sort of personal experience, which means, of course, that there's families up and down the country in Donegal and Sligo and Cork and in Dublin where people in that family have had to travel or have had experience of it. And I think it's that personal experience of coming out on the wrong side of the of the Eighth Amendment. So that was the second biggest thing. So the legislation it isn't there within those big things. It's listening to people's stories in general in the media and then your personal experience within your friends and family. Those were the big really things. Brief points just about the, the, the conversation uh, that's been occurring. I, I saw the research for Together for Yes in recent days and indeed the focus groups from uh, fin- that Fine Gael, um conducted. And all of them came back with the same thing. Uh, choice was not to be used and repeal was not to be used because for some reason those two words didn't strike a chord with the electorate. The words that were to be used uh, according to the uh, focus groups and the research were care, compassion. Um, the focus groups for Fine Gael all showed that the nine women a day that were travelling to the United Kingdom and the three women who were seeking uh, an abortion pill online that was what struck a chord with a significant amount of males, uh, particularly in that category of 20 to 34, who uh, from the beginning, uh, Together for Yes and Fine Gael focus group showed that the males were the people that they, and older women that they needed to convince. And when they started on this line of um, nine women a day, three, I think it was Simon Harris that first initiated it, they started to see some support from the male category come back into uh, come come to the yes side. So I think it's really interesting that the RT exit poll would show that mm. choice was such a factor when, and and having spoken to canvassers again in recent days for the Together for Yes side, they were instructed not to use the word choice. And am I right in saying there was some tension within the Together for Yes campaign over whether this emphasis should continue during the campaign or whether the question of rights and choice should, should become, should be highlighted more? I think one of the, the uh, the biggest focus of frustration for people on the ground um, canvassing for a yes vote was that the national uh, headquarters seemed to want to focus on the hard cases, whereas those canvassing felt that wasn't necessarily reflective of the realities of uh, women who had to seek terminations abroad. The reality is the majority of them travelled because they're in a crisis pregnancy. And a lot of people who canvassed felt that that was the story that needed to be told. And I think social uh, I think it's Saoirse Long did it very well on uh, Vincent uh, Pat Kenny on the final uh, debate of last Wednesday. Uh, 
that was the first time anyone had actually said, I didn't travel because I was a victim of rape. I didn't travel because I was a victim of incest. I didn't travel because I had a diagnosis of a fatal fetal abnormality. I travelled because my pregnancy wasn't right for me at that time. That was a, a huge source of frustration for those in the ethnic And was that because... That was also a real Sorry, moment in, in the campaign, you know, particularly for how she articulated her story and also for the response um, from Ronan Mullen. So I think that what that actually really exposed was the juxtaposition of either campaign that one person who's very emotional who's sharing this very ordinary but painful story uh, is met with a lack of empathy and I really think that that's summed up for a lot of people um, which side they kind of wanted to be on if they were anyway undecided But were you aware of that strategic tension um, which, which which we're talking about there I mean I was, I'm aware of, of certain uh, messaging that was prioritised um, but there's always going to be tensions within campaigns especially ones that are come from a non-hierarchical base and that are multifaceted in terms of how they're made up of different groups. Obviously, you know, ARC, Women's Council, and then the the broader coalition to repeal the Eighth Amendment that became Together for Yes. There are similar, similar um, you know, the, the most immediate comparison is Yes Equality and how that mer- emerged from a merger between Glenn and Marriage Equality. There are very similar tensions in terms of messaging, etc. So when things come from grassroots, uh, more NGO type spaces, you are always going to have that, a plurality of thought that and, might and conflict. I'm oversimplifying here, but is this really a tension between, on the one hand, committed activists who have been committed to, to social change for, for, for many years and who are now at the point of achieving that through uh, an electoral contest in which strategically some parts of the, the broader campaign, which is required at that point, decides to, for want of a better phrase, soften the message? I think there's always pain felt by uh, grassroots activists um, when the, their work is filtered into a strategic campaign process that has a singular goal. I just, I just want, to, if I can briefly go back to where you, where uh, I have to say, I, I, I agree with Pat. What Pat was saying earlier, yes, there was a huge movement of people who wanted societal change amongst, particularly, uh, younger women. But I do think, having been on uh, observing a number of canvases uh, with politicians, it, it's not fair to, or accurate to say that the legislation wasn't part of the referendum campaign because on every door that was knocked on the canvases that I observed. The 12 week proposition came up a lot. Um, there was uh, those undecided voters struggled with the 12 week. And yeah. so they're they're not mutually, I, I don't think, exclusive. No, I think it's a factor. But, but this is the structure of any political campaign. And in a way, the, you know, the, the, the story of this campaign is of the, the yes campaign, which started with the big advantage that I referred to earlier, the overwhelming desire amongst a majority of people for a liberalisation of the abortion laws. The story of the latter part of the, cam, uh, of the campaign certainly is of them, you know, confronting the political realities and learning to do politics, you know, which is, you t- you know, you keep your base happy and their base was, you know, you know, 30, 40, early 40s percent and then concentrating on those voters that they needed to get over the line. And they did that really successfully, but they did it by not talking about choice, not talking about, you know, our you see, bodies, our know. rights, not talking about human rights. And this was but something... Pash, you're, just, but your polling was the, 80%. The national, the, the, the so they had their own research identified this as late as or as early as last autumn, yeah. uh, not yeah. to talk about a human oh, yeah. rights, not to talk about a rights based thing, but to talk about care and compassion. All those yeah. things that we see on the posters. And the reason that we saw them on the posters is because that was the campaign strategy to talk to that middle ground. And it was really successful. That's true. In doing that. But on the other hand, as you say yourself, 
there was huge majorities for repealing it going back a good few years. In the exit polls, people had made up their mind. So this was something that people... So it wasn't a matter that people didn't want to repeal and you needed to get them over the line. What it was was about... Well, what way were you going to get them out? It was a mobilising thing. No, it was about insure, ensuring it was, it was turnout. ensuring them that what replaced that it, was, it. That it wasn't going to be too scary. Yes, exactly. But, yeah. but it wasn't about getting them over some line because, as you said yourself, there was a huge plurality were for repeal going back a good number of years. So they were already over that line. It was about It was about reassuring them no. that it was okay to stay there. But there would have been a block... Was, yes. Well, yeah, to a point. But yeah. there would have been a blocking minority of, uh, of them. What was your number uh, two and a half years ago that wanted to repeal? It was, it was, yeah, it was in, it, it was, was in, 60 it was something. in the 60s. It was, yeah. it was in asked, around what yeah. actually happened. But when we so asked that, the question a couple of ways and we asked about what should replace that, and we talked about this numerous times in here following our polls, is that there was uncertainty and unease about what would replace it. Mm. And people, the spectre of the UK-style abortion regime was was raised and we polled it and people were very nervous about that. So what the campaign needed to do, and I think at the very end of the campaign when politicians came on board, politicians come on board at the end of every, uh, uh, of, of every campaign, but that also gave some comfort to, you know, the you know the middle ground, small C well, conservative Fine Gael You had a process, you had a process of a citizens' assembly, yeah, citizens you assembly, had a process yeah, of yeah, an yeah, committee. The fact the there was picture. legislation. But the process that you're talking about is not convincing those that are already convinced. It's convincing those people that need but, to be convinced and reassured. Need, I, yeah, maybe reassured. So I don't think convinced yes, because because convinced. because there was 60 something percent in your own polls going back years. So those people, that's where they were voting. There was 60 something percent in the Citizen Assembly. It ended up reasonably close to it. There was 60 something in your own polls. So it was just reassuring them that it was okay to stay where they were. Do you think think that given that and given that those opinion polls go back quite a while now, do you think one of the things about this, all this is it reveals a kind of sclerosis in the Irish political system that it took so long for the politics of Ireland to react to a change which some people, some people have argued in the last week that this could have been could have been repealed ten years ago. Uh, Sarah talks about politicians not being in touch with the, with with the mood of the people. I think Does that the reveal people, a problem I think there? the political and kind of media class were very scared of it, especially anybody who was older and kind of remembered eighty three. You know, like I've talked to even some of the the yes Fianna Fáil TDs, for example. And uh, they've said, you know, I'm just so pleased that I never signed those kind of pledges for life that used to come around. And, you know, never had too many of the the people who would have been from Youth Defence or whatever or would have been trying to persuade TDs to sign pledges for life who would then be part of Common and that kind of thing. And that's the kind of difference. So I think people had this memory of this kind of really awful, really divisive, really unpleasant campaign. And we're just nervous of running it again. So even listening to you guys in in the podcast, everybody was nervous that somehow there'd be some silence, even though we knew there was 60-something. They'd been in the polls. No, but people were nervous that... You know that something could happen. That somehow people, the the horses would be would be frightened, and you know the the no campaign would be able to get enough people concerned enough to to go over. Then you probably wouldn't happen. The numbers were against it happening, 
But nonetheless, I, I don't think there was many people when it came out, the number that it did went, oh, yeah, well, I was confident that would happen. Yeah, I, I mean, so, I do think that, that uh, like a lot of people... So people were nervous. So it could have been done before. But I think the reason it didn't is that the politicians, they're targeted. Look at that um, uh, was a protection of life during pregnancy bill. Mm. Talk to Jerry Buttermer, who was chairing that. Mm. And the awful abuse he took the things that were posted through his letterbox and sent in to him and the abuse he took on this so you know they were nervous can actually, I just say though I don't think I actually sorry Pat I don't think uh, the result would have been as resounding as it was had it not had taken place when it took place and I've spoken to uh, the Together for Yes side I've spoken to the No side uh, in the last couple of days and I've spoken to politicians I genuinely believe had this referendum had taken place five years ago had it taken place two years ago, it wouldn't have been the result that it was. Because what this, the, we, it was a convoluted process that we all believed was a delaying mechanism to get to the, to a referendum. But actually what it did and was, it, it was. T- and, and, and in a way it was, but it took people with them. And yeah, was, there's already... It was an educational process. Absolutely. Yeah. And there was people who were in either camp and they were set in stone. They wouldn't be budged from their side. But I don't buy this argument that people were not brought along in the process because mm. I believe that they were. And I think... But you know, the process not have happened seven or eight years the, ago? Yeah, no, so like I'm not assuming the process, you know what I mean? So you're talking about a citizen assembly uh, and a ructus committee. And I, I'm not saying that you'd have got the same number five years ago. All I'm saying is that the reason that it, you didn't get it five years ago is that politicians were just scared of it. They yeah. just, you know, well, they, think, yeah, there's a folk memory of the unpleasant politicians. Yeah. Just, just briefly, Fine Gael politicians who would say, I'm sure Sarah would back this up, who did that 2013 Protection of Life and Pregnancy Bill, which was simply a, a codification of the law as it existed already, would say, and remember, this was the government that took over in the midst, uh, the midst of the crash that had to uh, vote through the most excruciating budgets and cuts to local services and so forth. They all say that 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 piece of legislation was the single most difficult thing they had to do over the course of that government. Yeah, that, that is absolutely right. But well, it wasn't I, put I, to yeah. the people. That's the difference. Do you know what I mean? Like, while they might... In a way, it had already been put n- to no, people years what, before well, that particular... Well, so it's while, the what I'm saying is... The what, politicians what, was just so intense, but they couldn't yeah. actually do that to the people. So the politicians were kind of in the eye of a storm, which is why they... Like, if I was a politician, I'd have shied away from it probably because there was so much unpleasantness. I think, I think, like, yes, of course, it was an extraordinarily divisive political process, but that was happening internally. You know, that that wasn't what people were thinking outside of, you know, Jerry Buttermer getting abuse or whatever. And obviously we know that the the people who are very anti-abortion um, are, are very mobilised in terms of actually doing that kind of stuff and lighting up the switchboards. But I'd, I'd agree with Sarah in that this point in time was actually also a zeitgeist moment. And what happened in terms of having this referendum in 2018, it allowed the movement to build. So the infrastructure, you know, was spread out across the country. And that was really, really key. That network of people, of ordinary citizens, um, you know, getting into their pro- pro-choice groups around the country who were who were marching with the abortion rights campaign, March for Choice, all that kind of stuff. All of the stuff allowed the movement to build and the, the more public um, educative uh, educational process of um, not only the Citizens Assembly but also all of the reporting around the Iraq this committee. And what about having the marriage equality referendum through the, yeah, a well, couple I of think years that, ago? Is I that think a sort of a stepping stone? Absolutely well? because when you look at the infrastructure of canvassing um, you know the marriage equality uh, referendum very much trained people up 
in terms of, of how to canvas and how to then re-engage. And what's also really, really crucial is that a huge portion of, of people who have been involved in this campaign, which is, you know, literally thousands and thousands and thousands in terms of volunteering around the country, um, are engaged politically on issues. They're not engaged on, on part. OK, on well, let me politics. ask you actually about that because clock is ticking away here, but I do want to look forward. And you mentioned Noel Whelan's column in, in, in this morning's Irish Times where he talks about the thousands of young women in their 20s and 30s celebrating last Saturday, you know, at the result. And he talks about what the impact of that might be in future political movements, either in terms of direct parliamentary politics or presumably some form of other issue-based movements. What do you see happening with that? Well, I think it's hard to measure, but I think that it will obviously have an impact because in the first instance, you have an awful lot of young women who have never been politically engaged, um, who became engaged on this. And there's also a legacy of the marriage equality referendum there, you know, what is very noticeable in terms of the canvassing infrastructure was the number of gay men canvassing, for example, who technically don't necessarily have skin in the game when it comes to abortion or women's autonomy. Um, So that is a a legacy of that. And so you have this cohort of women who've become politically engaged. We know that figure of the 94% increase amongst women between 18 and 24 compared to the 2016 general election. Um, So you have have that massive... um, engagement of people. Um, you also have, uh, you know, the power of, of being able to actually change something is um, very exciting. It is, uh, creates a contagion around what, what else you can do. Um, you also have young women looking at other women who have been leaders in this campaign and, and, and that, that, the role model effect. Um, you also have uh, women in particular engaging with um, what it means to be canvassing, what that looks like, what it means to meet politicians on the ground, uh, what it means to have conversations, uh, you know, in the pub or in your nail bar or whatever that are actually about political issues. All of this stuff is extremely important. Um, and as we saw in the aftermath of the marriage equality re- referendum, where literally the night of the celebration, you know, I was was out, obviously, and talking to kind of younger gay guys who were like 18, 20, and they were, seeing, they were saying, repeal the eighth, repeal the eighth, repeal the eighth. You know, so now we're looking for more for the first thing that people were saying to me after this was like, we need to dismantle direct provision. We need to look at, you know, proper uh, pay equality in terms of gender, all that kind of stuff. So it is really, really important for political parties to identify the fact that younger people, while they may be somewhat disconnected from um, the legacy of you know party loyalty, really, really, really engage on issues. And it's not necessarily about who is the party for the 33%, who is the party for the 66%. And it, there will be a dissipation um, in terms of people gravitating towards individual candidates. Um, you know, we saw, let's say, um, Minister Zappone get a bump in her canvassing teams and so on. And people, you know, this week, uh, you know, there were four can- uh, candidates launched for female candidates for the Social Democrats, for example. You're going to see the SOC Dems get a boost. You're also going to see, um, you know, candidates certainly on the ground uh, in Dublin, for example, Ailish Ryan, Rebecca Moynihan, Gary Gannon and people like that who really, really showed up um, will have will have uh, kind of te- teams around them. I know dozens of people who ended up canvassing in the 2016 general election for candidates who were supportive of marriage equality. So I think we are going to see that again uh, later this year if the general Sarah, election is do you think you'll see more young women in particular who've been involved in this campaign? Do you see, think you'll see them active in party politics as candidates or campaigners? I don't know, to be honest. Um, oh, I'm a bit of a cynic when it comes to this because I just know from my own 
friend group and my family group, people were exercised on this particular issue and the issue of marriage equality. But when it came to the 2016 general election, I'm not even sure half them cast their vote. Um, And, you know, these are people who are educated, uh, you know, of a of a certain uh, age and demographic. And I, 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 I'm not sure that they they went some of them went canvassing in referend the two referendums that I mentioned. But when it came when it comes to wider political issues, they're completely disengaged from it. And I do think I've never seen anything like I've seen this referendum campaign. Noel has articulated extraordinarily well, particularly about the event in the Intercontinental on Saturday night. It was all young women who were present at it. Uh, I just saw photographs and videos now, but it was all women. And that's uh, that's uh, that's unlike anything I've seen before. But and I don't if know I was if in that translates. Party, I would really want to try doing my best to plug into that Well, energy, I, think she, I mean, I think Sinn Féin are going to do quite well out of it because Mary Lou Macdonald emerged from the campaign so well. And people who would never have even thought about voting for Sinn Féin yeah, are going to... I'm afraid. Look, James, go ahead. OK, so if you look at the, the exit poll, the really interesting thing was Obviously, by definition, everybody who was polled in it was a voter because they were coming out of a polling station and they had just voted. And yet you had enormous numbers of don't knows. So people who just hadn't actually party engaged... Party political don't knows. Party political don't knows. They hadn't actually engaged with what's the difference between Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Greens, Sock Dems. So huge numbers there. Although one of the things Noah Whelan suggests is perhaps that this locates itself in support of individual politicians. Yeah, like I'm he saying. talks about yeah. Catherine Zappone well, getting elected well, maybe in the aftermath I, of the I don't think that referendum. it'll be huge amounts of support for individual politicians. What it might be is much bigger canvassing teams if people, yeah. if people are motivated for them. But like you saw after marriage equality, Labour were probably the party most associated and they certainly didn't get any class of a bump in, in 2016. So, you know, I think Tweruna is right is that this is a big kind of issue-based vote and if it can be directed in that way, maybe individual politicians will get big canvas teams out behind them to, and to the extent that canvassing matters then that'll matter. But their overall party vote won't, I don't think, be. And in fact, the only party that actually went up on this, if according to the RTE poll anyway, that we were in, was Fine Gael. Sinn Féin actually went down. So so if you look at the, the BNA poll that, that, uh, uh, that was done just very closely behind this, Sinn Féin actually lost three points between... Uh, Isn't that because Sinn their... Féin voters historically don't turn out? Well, maybe... Uh, but, that, that, that's well, the distinction between... Like they, the maybe they don't turn out issue, and maybe they didn't campaigns. turn out for this issue. And Fine Gael voters went up. So the Fine Gael voters Came turned out, out yeah. and, 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 and yes, went up. Yeah. So... Do you know what I mean? It's really, I don't see any huge party political effects in this. Single issue campaigns are almost always, you know, big events like this are often overinterpreted. Single issue campaigns are not political movements. And we have the evidence, as the two lads have said, about the the marriage equality thing. I think it will have a thing. Feminism is a political movement. You know, the third wave feminism is a significant political I think it will have effects. I think think it will have effects. I I mean, I was horrified when I saw Noel uh, Whelan suggesting this morning that it would result in more women candidates because I'd written more or less the same thing last night in a draft of the Saturday column. But uh, but I think he's ap- he's absolutely right. 
um, I think you will see more. And I think issues that are important to uh, women, like the, the uh, uh, like the gender pay gap that Una mentioned earlier on, will be bumped up the political agenda. I think there's no doubt about that. But as an event that changes the or political world, much less in Ireland. Yeah, I, mean, I, 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 I think that's like, just wishful thinking. No, I don't think so because I think um, you cannot quantify how these things actually engage people, and and it depends what you mean as, as elections change. are a quantifying process. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, like, let's look past elections. There's there's no metric for measuring how people what changes in people's mind, minds and, the, and, the, and themselves from engaging in something like this, where they'll go further down the line, how, how community organising and grassroots activism was really displayed on a mass level across the country. That changes people. Now, it might result in an extra Fine Gael candidate running in, in Dublin Bay South or something, but it really, really is important. Really full up there. Yeah, but I mean, it, that's why I'm saying it. Um, like, you know, it really, really is important for people's personal development and their political engagement when something like this happens and you can't quantify that power and you can't quantify how that changes people and why you mightn't be able to see it in polls or point differentiations between parties it's so important and we have a generation of younger people in Ireland who've won basically with the help of other people in the country two massive pieces of social change and that power is contagious and it's going to have an impact. Una says who speaks for the 66% and it would appear to me that Michal Martin, Leo Varadkar, Mary Lou Macdonald, Brendan Howland, the leader of every single registered political party in the country, with the exception of Renewa, who ain't so significant, um, claims to speak for the 66%, which does beg the question to me, who speaks for the 34%? Jane, who speaks yeah, well, for I don't think that, that people are that actually um, what, so whenever you, you look at it, so even though the polls have shown 60 plus percent in favour of repealing for years now, when you actually ask people what's the issue you're voting on in this election, so even when that was asked in 2016, abortion was down the line. So, you know, so those older um, and they are mostly older, like the, the only two things that predicted the no vote were um, age over 65 and if you went to mass more than once a week. And those are the two things. So those people... More than, the, more than once a week is yeah, enthusiastic. Is very enthusiastic. So um, once a week was kind of coming up, it, it was edging towards no. Um, once a month and less was definitely majority yes kind of time. So those that was, that was actually the, the, the factors that mattered. But that's not what people vote on. No, so people when people come to the election, the, they're, they're voting on what's going to happen in their, you know, local constituency. They're voting on their part. They're voting on whatever Someone pork is going to be delivered. It's actually, yeah. This was always yeah. classically the mistake yeah. that was made by the, pro, by the pro-life side. So since 1992, since the, since the X case, they've been trying to get single issue abortion candidates elected in, in lots of constituencies. And it's been a dismal They failure. have never yeah. come never near getting it. one. And that's because people, as, as, uh, as Jane says, don't vote on abortion as the most important thing in, uh, in a general election campaign. I think it would be ironic if the other side of the campaign were now to miss our We cannot possibly give the last word on this issue to a man, so uh, (laughs) (laughs) Sarah. Uh, Look, uh, Renewa um, was formed on on the basis of being an anti-abortion party and none of its uh, seats were retained at the last general election. I think that that goes the other way too. Um, And I think the people who, the political uh, plaudits uh, for uh, who got us to where we are 
people like Claire Daly, people like um, Ivana Batchik, uh, people like Catherine McGuinness, people like, and I do think Micheál Martin, Simon Harris, and so forth. I could go on, no, no, no. I don't think those people will benefit in any great way uh, from their role in this referendum campaign. I think people's perception of them maybe, you know, maybe hindered or maybe benefited from what happened in the referendum campaign. But I, I genuinely believe not, no seats are won or lost on the issue mm. of abortion. But politics mm. happens beyond parties as well. Absolutely. And that's where the impact will, will yeah, totally absolutely. happen. But I mean, they, they, they there might be higher turnout. You know, like my teenage yeah. daughter and her friends are, they weren't able to vote this time, but they're kind of politicised about the issue. When they do get a chance to vote, they will actually turn up. And also who, voters, who, who parties are targeting as well. But I do think politics happens beyond the party political system. And that's where the impact is going to, going to have. This is a, a massive generational shift in terms of how engaged young people are in Ireland. We shall leave it there. Thanks to Una, to Jane, to Sarah, to Pat. And that is it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. Do remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. It's always great if you can rate us there as well because it helps us to get out to a broader audience. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcast. And your views are always very welcome. You can mail me or even DM me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at hlinahan at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.